As you grab your seats, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in a couple of places, right at the beginning of chapter 5 and then right near the end of chapter 5 as well. Um, and as you do that, I just want to extend another word of hospitality. Uh, thank you so much for being here. It's always good when we can gather together. My name is John Wayne McMahon, one of the pastors here. Um, and if you're new or visiting or a guest, especially you, we don't take it for granted uh, that you would trust us with your time. And so I'm just grateful to be with you or those that are watching online or maybe uh, either live or later on this week. We are grateful. It is good. And in this season of life and everything that's going on in our world, let's not take for granted our opportunity to be together, uh, to gather here in this space and to worship. You are joining us today on this third week of the Lenten journey, this series called Hunger, where we are considering the desires of our heart and whether or not they are pointed towards what God has called us to. Do we hunger for the one who satisfies us? And so today we turn to a hunger for holiness. And to do that, we look at Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read one verse. This is verse 6. So chapter 5, verse 6, and then we'll turn over to to chapter 5, verse 43. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Verse 43. You have heard that that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Let's pray together. God, I give you thanks again for your presence here in this space. And I pray that you would add your blessing to this scripture, your holy word. Where we are empty, would you fill us? Where we are weak, would you strengthen us? Where we are wrong, would you correct us? And would you send us out once more? And God, I pray for myself that you'd speak through me or in spite of me, but may it be your message that's delivered. We love you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name. Let all God's people say, amen. I am a perfectionist. One of the scariest things to me is beginning things. That's it. Just beginning things is really hard for me. It's a difficult and scary task. If I do not have a plan and assurance and confidence that the task in front of me, I can do fully and do it well, it is very hard for me to begin. This week, I submitted my dissertation to format control and to prepare for the last steps of this journey and getting ready for a doctoral defense. But yeah, thank you. Praise God. You could pray for that, by the way, over the next few weeks as well. But I would be embarrassed to tell you how many hours I spent looking at a blank screen, struggling to even put the first few words down every time I got to a new chapter. Or I would be embarrassed to tell you how, uh, how long or how many efforts it took me to rewrite even an introductory paragraph. That's, that's where that perfectionism haunts me a little bit. Are there any perfectionists in the room? Is there anybody here with me? Oh, three of you. Come on, get your hands up. There's some perfectionists here. You know what I'm talking about. And here's the deal. I imagine perfectionists annoy the rest of the people in the room. Don't you? Don't look at us right now. 
It sounds like a humble brag, right? Like when you're interviewing someone and you ask someone like, hey, what's your weakness or uh, where's some things you struggle and they give you one of those, well, I just care too much or I just work too hard, right? Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? And so I feel like that's kind of how people might see perfectionists sometimes. But perfectionists know it's a disease and a curse, right? I can get a lot done if I can get the ball rolling, uh, but it's a struggle to get it rolling in the first place. And you know what? What really is the disease and the curse is most perfectionists know that there's no perfect And so that's the struggle. That's the irony of being a perfectionist. That's when it can be paralyzing. So I think if I I was just to overgeneralize in the room, we have a couple different people. We have the people that are constantly striving for something that is unattainable, you perfectionists. And then we have the rest of the room that is chuckling to themselves and thinking, silly people, keep your expectations low and enjoy life, right? And if you're married to each other, don't look at each other right now, but you might want to share that in a counseling session. I think that could be a source of struggle. But with those people in the room, when we read a statement like this from Matthew 5 of Jesus saying, go and be perfect, I would imagine there's a few different responses to that, that we have to respond to that in different ways. I think that we can do one of three things to something like this. We either ignore it, We either explain it away, oh, he didn't mean that. It's an idealistic pursuit, right? Or we are plagued by it. We are haunted by it. Those are the perfectionists in the room. So what does it mean to be perfect? What is this calling of holiness? What does it mean to be righteous? We're gonna discuss that in the coming moments. And, and to do that, we look at Matthew 5, which if you know uh, the Matthew, Matthew's gospel, you'll know that this is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is really the height of the Sermon on the Mount. And this calling to be the children God has called you to be, to love enemies and to be perfect. And I'm just gonna touch on this part of Matthew's gospel briefly. We even just uh, taught on this text not too long long ago, but this sermon is a vision of the Christian life. And this text that we read is at the end of seven uh, commands, a culmination of these commands. The sermon begins in Matthew 5 in the humble beginnings of blessed are the poor. Blessed are those that are humble. And it works up to the mountaintop of this is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a child of God. And that's to love your enemies and to love those who persecute you. But our text is at the end of these seven commands. You have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say, do not be angry. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to anyone that has looked at a woman or a man lustfully, they have committed adultery already. You have heard it said that anyone that divorces their wife must give her a certificate, but I say, you have heard it said, but I say, you have heard it said, but I say, and then our text You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then this great throwaway line, at least it seems, be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your father in heaven is perfect. And so what does it mean to be perfect? Because we're either gonna ignore this, talk around it, or we're gonna be haunted by it. So what does it mean to be perfect? 
Well, one of the most distinguishable, important parts of our Methodist heritage is our doctrine on Christian perfection, or in other words, entire sanctification. And now listen, I know some of us in the room are not Methodists, like Catholic Baptists got married and you're like, what's in the middle? I don't know. Let's go to the Methodist church, right? I know that there's some of us that are here for the student ministry, the children's ministry. You love what Marvin's doing in missions. And so you're here, or maybe it was the closest church and you wanted to walk here. I know that we're not all Methodists, but this is one of the most important doctrines of who we are. Maybe you're like me. I grew up in a Methodist home, and when I came to know Christ, I thought, maybe I'm being called to ministry. Maybe I'm a Methodist. What does it mean to be a Methodist? And people in my family were like, I don't know. I'm not sure. So I went to seminary to find that out. But some of us are unsure on what are the distinctives of Methodist theology. The founder of Wesley, uh, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, famously said this about Christian perfection, that it is the grand depositum which God has lodged with the people called Methodists. And for the sake of propagating this chiefly, he appeared to have raised us up. So whatever you think about Methodism, the founder, the movement that was born in the Wesley house and what Wesley says about Christian perfection is this might be the very reason that we exist to add this to the conversation, which is fascinating to me because I, it took a long time for me to hear about Christian perfection in the Methodist church. And this is probably, if we were to take a straw poll, something we don't talk about very much here in this space. And yet, here it is as the grand depositum, the reason why we exist, possibly. And so we're going to lean into this and wrestle with this for just a second. But to do that, I want to be honest, Wesley struggled with this doctrine in the way that people would push back on it. So I want to start with what perfection is not. And then we'll talk about what perfection is. Perfection is not a superhero strength. Okay, it's not a comic book character. I love this game, my four-year-old and two-year-old, Luke and Riley love to play with me. They call it superhero strength. And what it means is they could run at me and they can yell out superhero strength. And in that moment, six foot two, 225, 230 of me is immediately immobilized by the little four-year-old and two-year-old, right? They have all the strength in the world to take out dad. This is not what we're talking about with Christian perfection, that somehow there's this superhero impeccability that exists. That is not not what this doctrine is about. It is not about a perfect impeccability. It is not about having perfect knowledge. God, I want it. To a sin, I wanna be the smartest person in the room, right? But this is not what Wesley's talking about, that we would have all the knowledge or we would be absent of ignorance, like that we would never be surprised by something. That's not what he's talking about by Christian perfection. It's not free from infirmities. Like all of a sudden, diagnoses are not a problem that we have to worry about. That's not what Christian perfection is. We're not talking about some comic book superhero. It's not a person without sin, meaning it's not a person that can't make mistakes. A few weeks ago, there was something that I meant complete good to do. And when I did that, I realized afterwards that I hurt people in doing it. I had no bad intent whatsoever. But in doing it, I had no idea how people would receive that very action and I had to repent of that. That's a different kind of, it's a sin of of missing what's happening. I am not saying that Christian perfection is a person who never makes mistakes. That's the superhero from your comic book. Christian perfection is not a person without temptation. Jesus goes into the wilderness and faces temptation. 
And Christian perfection is not the person who is without the need to keep going and to keep growing. See, Wesley would say, listen, tomorrow is a day where you can learn more about yourself and more of who God is so that you might be able to give more of yourself to more of what you know of God tomorrow. But it is about being so full of love that that is a possibility, that you could be submitted to that very truth. So what is Christian perfection then? It is perfection, as Wesley puts it in the most simple terms, perfection is love excluding sin. It's more than just being forgiven. Y'all, we have been talking about this with salvation for so long. And I think it's important because over the last 40 years, we have dwelled salvation down to this decision that we make, that we come to the altar, we pray a prayer and that's it and we move on. But listen to me, listen, 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 church. Salvation in Jesus Christ is more than you being forgiven. There is, a there is a relational change, meaning you are far from God and now he's brought you into a family. You are an orphan and now you are a child of God. You have been moved into this position, but there is also a real change in you. You are not just forgiven of sin, but you are called to freedom from sin. That's what the cross and resurrection coming together means. That not only was there atonement and a possibility of forgiveness, but now there is actual life and healing that comes out of an empty tomb. So we're not just forgiven for sin because that is a nice thing. And in itself, it is good enough. If God would look at you and go, I know you stink a lot. I know you're kind of bad at these things, but I forgive you. But that's not salvation. Salvation is not only do I forgive you, but I'm actually gonna help you to walk in life now. That you don't have to be held in chains anymore that you can find healing from this addiction, that you can be set free from this very thing. So it's not just forgiveness, it's also freedom, but it's not just freedom, it's also love. It is not just being forgiven for sin, then finding freedom from sin, but it is also a love and a joy and a peace that is born into the heart so that you might know intimacy with God, so that you might know love of neighbor. That's the fullness of salvation. That's what God desires for us. That's why Christ came and that's why he laid his life down, not just so that we'd be forgiven, not just to have freedom and we could go about our lives free, but that we could also experience the deep love of the one who created us and to be synced up with him again. That's what perfection is getting after. This idea that love can fill our hearts. Frederick Bruner is helpful here with this text. The word perfect in Matthew 5 is the word telos. It is usually translated perfect, but the noun perfect seems too cold to carry the warmth, the weight, and the width and humanity of telos in the text. This is Bruner's words. Perfect in English seems often to mean faultless, flawless, or other superhuman, semi-fanatical connotations that are neither pleasant for others nor true to Jesus' sense. Luke, in his version of this same sermon, heard Jesus say, be merciful as your father is merciful. This kind of perfection to which G Matthew's Jesus refers, as the context shows, is the perfection of mercy, of wide and wholeheartedness, not the high perfection we associate with impeccability. This could be rendered to say, there must be no limit to your goodness as your heavenly father's goodness knows no bounds. 
Meaning the idea is not that we would be some kind of impeccable experience, but that our love would be so expanded that in a moment or in a day or in an hour or in a season, all of ourselves might be fully given to God so that we could know his love fully and love neighbor fully. And y'all, I know this is a high bar, but can it be done? Can God do this very thing in us? Kevin Watson puts Christian perfection this way. By the way, I recommend his book, uh, Perfect Love. It is, a, if you wanna dive into this a little bit further. But Watson says this, holiness then involves God's work to change us from the inside out. God gives us a new heart and new affections. As we become holy, we come to love God and what God loves more and more over time. Becoming holy also entails a transfer of allegiance from the carnal, fleshy things of the world, love of the world, pleasure, comfort, fame, pride, and so forth to the things of God. What Watson is saying is that holiness and perfection is not about living impeccable lives, but it's about living a life that is now transferring allegiance to the one who loves us more than anyone in the world. And to begin to transfer allegiance from these other things that we've found value to the one who satisfies. That's why we're in this series called Hunger. Do we hunger for this very thing? And let us be tricked into thinking this is just some Methodist doctrine. Wesley drowned his doctrines in preaching in scripture. He brings this out of scripture. I could name 40 verses, but I wanna give you just a few. Perfection is in the Bible. Let's start in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 11. I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. In chapter 20, verse 26, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my very own. In the very beginning, as God's forming his people and he's shaping them and creating a relationship with them, he says, I'm calling you to be different than everyone else in the world. This is the idea of set apart that we get from holiness. Perfection is not about being the perfect, impeccable human, but it's about being set apart in God's love versus what's around us. And so God from the beginning in Leviticus is showing him, I want you to be different than the nations around you. I want you to be set apart. Look what he says in the New Testament. This is 1 Peter chapter one. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at your coming. As obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had, past tense, when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all that you do. Peter drawing on Leviticus is gonna say, now we've been redeemed. We've been given life in Jesus Christ. Don't live that way anymore. We don't turn back to that way. We can actually live in this new way in the way life has been poured into us. What about what Paul says in Titus, Titus chapter two, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live life self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, not just some, but all wickedness 
and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Church, if we came up to Paul and we tried to give him one of these, yeah, but I just mess up every day and I'm just never gonna be perfect and this is just how I'm living and I try, but this is all I got. Do you think Paul's gonna be like, that's all right? No. What he says here is you have been redeemed. You have been called, you have been gathered out of this place. Don't go back to wickedness. It is, not, it is not something that has control over you anymore. There is a new way of life. That's why he says over and over and over again, I want you to put on this way of life. I want you to live into this. And I believe what we've done in doing this, in, in living with our sin, in living with this pessimism about what God's grace can do in our lives to set us free we have lowered our expectations. And when we have low expectations, I believe that translates to low prayers. Let me give you an example. I'm leading a group, um, a group of class meetings and training leaders for class meetings right now. And if you're wondering what those are, those are Wesleyan modes of discipleship that are built to have a location of community that has a singular focus on holiness, that we might walk in this very way together. And I've been through this training about 10, 12, 20 times by this time. And every single time we go through it, we get to chapter three of the book and everyone gets flustered. You know why? because it's about Christian perfection. And so we get to chapter three and everyone's like, ah, but, I, but God's perfect, I can't be perfect. And we wrestle with this idea of perfection. And I hear things like this. Maybe you've heard yourself say it. I just mess up every day and choose myself over and over and over again. Yes, I understand. Yes, I do too. I just can't see perfect in this life as a reality. But let me just give you a thought experiment for just a second, okay? We believe that God of the universe created from nothing all that is. That he had a blank canvas, he spoke words, and he painted the canvas that we live in. We believe that a man 2,000 years ago, with his death and sacrifice, atoned for and cleansed for every past, present, and future sin. And that death is enough so that we might be forgiven by God. It's a ridiculous thing that we hold to. And yet we will profess it today as we gather together. And yet it is too much for us to actually think that that same savior might be able to set us free from sin and walk in freedom and to be healed by him. Y'all, it's time to raise our expectations for life. It's time to raise our expectations because there is more than what we're walking through. There is more that God's love has for us. There is more than just dancing in the shallow end of marriage, of relationships. There is more than just humming it by with your career. There is more than going back to that empty well over and over and over again. We need to raise our optimism of God's grace again. Because right now, our pessimism seems to say that sin is more powerful than what God's grace can do. And y'all, if I'm ever gonna err, I wanna err on the side of God's grace, believing that he can do it. Here's what is fascinating to me. We don't like to talk about sin anymore. Personal sin, 
evil footholds of addiction, looking at things on your screen you shouldn't have to or shouldn't be, or selfishness at home or pride. We don't like to talk about substance abuse or these things that we keep running towards. We don't like to talk about corporate sin, racism and systemic disadvantage in our society and our communities, our culture. Even in the church, we are beginning to lose the ability to talk about sin lest we hurt somebody's feelings. But when we talk about being set free from sin, you all wanna talk about your sin all of a sudden. What if we raise our expectations? What if we ask again? What if we desire again that his love would set us free, would fill us with love so that we desire nothing but him and nothing but to love our neighbors? It's time that we ask for it. It's time that we desire after it. And it's not just so that we can live on this holy island by ourselves. The calling for holiness is a calling for holiness to the world. We're called, that's why Matthew 5 gets to this place. That's why you have this tagline of be perfect right after it says, I want you to love your enemies. And I want you to love those who persecute you because our holiness is actually for the world. The best illustration I've heard on it is from Miriam Swafield. She talks about holiness in a pretty funny way, but I think one that tells the, the point of it. Too often we think of holiness as a pursuit of perfect. This snooty, holy, or just being a person who follows all the rules long enough that we might call ourselves holy. Miriam compares this to wearing white skinny jeans. Anybody own a pair of white? You won't raise your hand for that. Now bear with me, you may not own a pair of white skinny jeans or you're thankful that John Wayne doesn't either, but if I were to have white skinny jeans and if I were to wear them right now, I, could, I would probably walk around and be a little worried about sitting in something, right? Because it would reveal things very quickly. It's why Lauren doesn't let me buy white shirts because I always get something on the front of it, right? And so I would be, um, I would be tempted to just try and protect them, to keep stuff from getting on them and worried about where to sit or getting anything on them. They're almost delicate. This is the way scribes and Pharisees see Jesus in the gospels. Because they see Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors and they're like, oh, he's gonna get dirty over there. He's gonna get something on his pants, right? He's gonna get in trouble over there. Why is he eating with those people? That's how we think of holiness sometimes. Like we have to be careful or that's what we're supposed to do. So we think I can't do this. I better wear some dark pants so no one can tell if I get something on it. Or I just need to do everything I can to protect them and to keep them white. And we obsess over it. But that's not what holiness is. Holiness is more like the bleaching agent that makes the jeans white in the first place. What if holiness is what you pour out on dirt to make it clean? What if holiness is the thing that goes into the broken place and brings life out of it again? What if holiness is the very agent of resurrection and reconciliation in the world? And now we believe something radically different about holiness. This is what happens in the Bible, y'all. Jesus becomes a pocket of holiness that everywhere he goes, he changes it. He changes it. He brings life. He tells people that have not been able to walk their whole life to get up and walk. He tells dead people to quit being dead. He brings healing everywhere he goes. Then the spirit comes on the church as Jesus ascends and he tells them to go out and do likewise. 
to be pockets and agents of holiness and reconciliation in the world. What if we were called to be those bleaching agents of life and new in the world that desperately needs it? This is why the extreme example of perfection to love enemies is put here in Matthew 5. Because the freely liberated person who is fully submitted and receiving the love of God can love without need of reciprocation. Can love without need of seeing a performance on the other side. To love regardless of the outcome and it becomes the leaven in the bread. It is the radical countercultural example of love and it changes the room, it changes the world. Friends, here's the thing. If our bar is down here about what our life can be and our bar is a little bit higher about what God's grace can do in the world, Where do you think the bar is for what God can do through us in the world? Is it up here? No, it's down here. And so what do we do is we hang out in our little holy huddles and we miss the opportunity to bring life into broken places. But when we have an expectation that I don't have to stay in this brokenness, that I don't have to be held by the chains of addiction, that I don't have to keep hiding this from other people, but God can bring healing. When I have a higher expectation, a higher optimism of what God's love can do in me individually, and when we are together corporately, it becomes a whole nother ball game for how we love and love goes into the world. It changes the world. And y'all, there's not a lot many of us can do about Ukraine or about systemic disadvantage or about racism. There's not a lot individually that we can do about those things, but we can be the leaven. We can be the love that says, I'm gonna go into these places. I'm gonna bring life because not because of anything that I do, but because of God's life, of Jesus's life that is in me as I go into the world. What would it be to hunger for that? And I don't think, I'm not convinced that you're all gonna leave this room and be like, I think I'm a Methodist now. That brother brought it. But what would it be for us today to say right here, God, I don't know what he's talking about and Wesley and blah, blah, blah but here's my heart. Would you fill it? Would you give me the love? Would you love me into loving? Would you help me to love my enemies? Would you help me to pray for those that are causing harm? Would you help me to be the leaven in the bread, to be that place of holiness in the world? I hunger after it. I pray we do together. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let all God's people say, amen. Friends, I wanna encourage you, if you're able, let's please stand together. Every week we respond in faith by saying what we believe and we do that by saying the Apostles' Creed together. You'll see the words on the screen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.